0: guys welcome to the podcast uh, it's called project a plus it's me i'm hunter what's your name q and uh, this is our uh palm Dior special i'm sure palema Deor, is that how you say it
1: palema d'or yeah
0: i thank you um in honor of the recent uh Kenis film festival uh, in which which film uh, Shoplifters won the Palme d'Or. Uh, that's why Koreeda. It's the first Japanese film to win the Palme d'Or since the Eagle in the '90s. But anyway, we're going to be talking about
1: two arbitrarily chosen <laughs> Palme d'Or winners.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, well it's very it's very topical because the Cannes Film Festival was three weeks ago at this point. <laughs> uh, but we're going to choose. Two I guess sort of arbitrarily. Not arbitrarily in that I wanted to watch both of them. But arbitrarily in this sense that there's not really in any relation. Though the character in both is somewhat similar. I don't know. I don't know if I'd say they're that similar. <laughs> they're both like landed gentry. <laughs> is that not true?
1: Circumstantially, I guess, yeah. Yeah. So suck my dick.
0: <laughs> um, anyway, so we're gonna be talking about the uh, two thousand fourteen winner, Winter Sleep by Nuri Bil on a uh, from Turkey, and then Uncle <laughs> Boodmi, who can recall his past lives. By, um, <laughs> oh, I just feel bad. I know I'm not gonna fuck this name up. Uh, a where is it? The call. Does that sound possible enough?
1: I enjoyed the upward inflection of uncertainty. <laughs> I think that's that's the traditional Thai pronunciation.
0: To. I would say very acclaimed international directors, neither of whom I'd seen any movies by. Uh, I've been trying to watch films or very poorly. I've been very, it's like a broad goal that I've not been striving for at all, but trying to watch films that are a little out of my comfort zone. They're you know, straying away from the uh, Japanese, French, and American cinemas which I normally watch. Uh, and so, I guess that's why I chose these two. Um, and also because I just wanted to watch them because they sounded interesting. Uh, but uh, first, you wanted to tell a little story about uh, something. Was it you pretending to write or was it something else?
1: Well, yeah, so I've, so I've, I've recently moved into a new place, independent of my parents, <laughs> I guess, who I was uh, temporarily boarding with
0: after traveling.
1: Now, it's difficult to do that without uh, a form of employment, which is something I do not have even to this moment.
0: Something that I had a bit of trouble with. Uh, Actually, when I was moving into my current place.
1: Um, But through my brother who knew someone, and I actually believe I've met my roommate before. Um, This happens to be a very recently renovated house that used to be a rental property, but the landlord is fairly casual about everything. So through a friend of a friend, he got the tenant who my brother knows. She obviously mentioned that there was a room free and I got it through her. So, her vouching for me, essentially. So, I haven't actually had to really show anything. And I only filled in the forms and handed them in, like, the day I was already moving all my stuff in. So, there's no way of, like... That's so funny. I could have picked you. He's okay with it. But I still have to kind of maintain this ruse that I'm a freelance writer.
0: <laughs> you should have just been podcaster. I'm telling you.
1: <laughs> and, and to an extent, I kind of am a freelance writer, but I'm bankrolling <laughs> myself. Like, my employer is me. I'm just
0: using my own money. To... And you're not really writing either, so... <laughs> no, no.
1: I've set myself goals, though. Like, I've set things I want to achieve in every week. And I probably won't, like, meet my goals, but...
0: Well, it's good to strive for something, anyway. So, my
1: landlord is into reading and stuff, so he's like...
0: Did you ask to see some of your stuff? Yeah, he did. He's like, can I read some of his oh stuff? Oh, my God. That's so funny. And I was like... Uh, well, yeah, when I'm
1: finished with it, you can read
0: it. <laughs> I
1: guess I'm going to have to, like, write this, like, silly fiction piece just so I can
0: show. I would, I would like it so much more if you, like, wrote, like, big ad copy or something like that. <laughs> what a mess your life is.
1: I do, I will, I do intend on getting some employment at some point. So I have talked about the fact that I've applied to local
0: cinemas. That'd be perfect for you. You can go to movies for free.
1: One, yeah, one of the perks would be being able to see movies for free, which otherwise would be one of my weekly costs. So I have made a spreadsheet Uh. of how long I can last on my savings, provided I barely spend any money. (laughs) (laughs) And just cover the rent and the bills. But one of the uh, crucial components of my food expenses is alcohol. And uh, normally I would buy a particular brand of cask wine. This is a white, dry... Citric kind of wine that I prefer. So there's a decent brand of wine, which is two liters. What's that in? Whatever. What do you guys measure in?
0: Uh, wine. We actually use liters and for wine. Our our measurement for like liquids is bizarre because like most stuff we measure in like liters. Like a, you'd buy like a two liter of like soda, right? But milk is in gallons for some reason.
1: Anyway, so this cask of wine that I normally get will cost. Apparently 11.3 us dollars. Mm, that's pretty cheap. And it was only, it was only two liters, right? So as casks go, it's on the smaller side.
0: Wait, what do you mean for a cask of wine? What is that? A box. Okay. okay.
1: Historically in Australia, it'd be called cask wine and colloquially goon, <laughs> which I like. And the, the it of the box is called a goon sack.
0: <laughs> that's like weirdly sexual. And uh, if you have
1: had a hard night drinking goon sacks directly out of the sack and you need a place to lie your head, you can blow up the empty sachet (laughs) (laughs) as a pillow.
0: Only in a country of alcoholics would that be common. Anyway,
1: so what I'm saying is once you go down the route of saying I don't care that much about the quality of the wine, I'm not buying bottles, I kind of just want the effect and the vague taste. I just want to get drunk. Not necessarily drunk, but like a buzz from it, right? And it's cheaper than getting the buzz from the equivalent amount of beer. Once oh, you smoke weird. no. Once, <laughs> once, <laughs> once you've committed to saying I'm gonna go down the route of buying these things in boxes, <laughs> I I suddenly realized just a couple of days ago why am I getting like a premium box as these things go? <laughs> why am I paying eleven U.S. dollars yeah. for two liters when I could be paying less than that for four liters? <laughs> So all I need to do is find, like, a four-liter one that I can tolerate. Oh, man. So that's what I bought today. Um, so if I can buzz market the brand, which is...
0: Uh, definitely exists in the US.
1: Sunnyvale.
0: Sunnyvale?
1: Yep. Now, the problem with the cheaper ones, like, as you go down the scale, they tend to be sweeter, which I really dislike. Like, they say, oh, it's a great fruity taste, and it's intolerable to me. So I usually favor the ones that say dry extra dry dry white generic mm-hmm. they they cease having names like chardonnay and seven <laughs> uh, young blanc and they're just like medium white and dry white and fruity white oh, that's great. <laughs> so I'm, I'm currently drinking a dry white and i'm pleased to report that it is definitely tolerable and i should make a handy savings every week by doubling the amount of liters i get for less money
0: how many liters is it so this is four litres. Four. Four
1: litres. And the cost, I can tell you, was uh, more like eight US dollars.
0: Fucking hell. That's so cheap. Yeah. I guess you live in like a wine growing country though. Instead of wine.
1: But, but there is tax on the wine. Like the wine, if you go to um, France, uh-huh. I guess we've both been to France.
0: We have. It's much cheaper. I, I, I didn't actually drink any wine when I was in France. <laughs> Well,
1: I certainly did because you could get like you could get decent bottled wine for like two dollars, two euros, something like that. Like that's what I would get every day.
0: <laughs> it's was kind of like beer in Germany then. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You can get it really cheap.
1: Whereas in Australia, although it is a wine-growing country, the normal standard of wine is more costly because of um, taxes and all that sort of stuff that don't necessarily apply in Europe or at least some countries of Europe. Um but these box wines are pretty
0: economic. You should uh run on a uh platform to get rid of those taxes.
1: Um indeed there's a five liter version, like the cheapest brand, <laughs> which is uh under seven US dollars. Oh
0: $1. my god. <laughs> we tried that one?
1: Yeah, it's terrible. I have a I have some level of respect, so I I don't go to that depth. Do you? Okay, there's a vestige of it remaining. I
0: mean, you are drinking, like, box wine by yourself, so...
1: <laughs> in my bedroom, yeah. yeah. Like, And I don't even put it in the fridge, because I'm ashamed. It's just... <laughs> and that's the best part of winter, because uh, normally you'd chill white wine. But because it's winter, I can just keep it in my room, and it's fine. Why
0: don't you just fucking put it in the refrigerator? Oh my god. Because I don't
1: need to, I don't want to keep making trips to the refrigerator to refill my wine <laughs> glass.
0: I just take it out of the refrigerator where you're going to drink it.
1: I mean, I guess I could do that, but I'd still have to ferry the box from the yeah, fridge my to god. my room. And that, that would look sus if anyone saw me. Oh
0: boy. I, you know, I, I like being friends with you because I'd never feel bad about where I am in my life. I could just say <laughs> like that. <with>
1: <laughs> and hopefully I'll provide the same service to our listeners as well.
0: This is why they listen to our podcast. <laughs>
1: In conjunction with this, uh, recent habit of expanding my, uh, box wine horizons, I've also purchased a bottle of the cheapest sherry that you can buy. Oh boy. And I also bought from an op shop, uh, which I'm not sure if the terminology translates. Nope. it just be like a, a second, like a charity shop that sells things cheaply that you can donate to.
0: A thrift store.
1: Yeah, like a thrift store. Exactly. Op shop stands for opportunity shop. So I bought a sherry glass. So I'm buying this sherry for a particular purpose, the sherry glass and the sherry itself. Uh, uh Because I eat dinner, once I prepare it in the common area, I take my my dinner to my room and I watch an episode of Frasier. (laughs) I know you haven't seen it, but in most episodes of Frasier, certainly the scenes in which Frasier is hanging around with his family in his apartment, he frequently drinks sherry. (laughs) Are you fucking kidding me? And when, when people consume things on television, I like to consume the same things to be simpatico with the characters. So I even sought out a glass oh my God. that matched Frasier's type of sherry glass. And I was annoyed to notice that I'd made the wrong decision today. So I've got one that has a bit of frilling around it, whereas he seems to have like a smooth on all sides sherry glass. But uh,
0: <laughs> why Fraser?
1: <laughs> it's it's just become a, a habit. I have good associations with watching Frasier. and I I think it holds up quite well,
0: especially the early seasons. I will say that uh, your crappy TV habits are probably better than mine are.
1: Not necessarily. What are your crappy TV habits?
0: Because pretty much I only watch uh, uh, cooking shows. Or at least recently, I have been.
1: Yeah, but I used to do that, like, tons, especially when we first got a a version of the Food Network here. Although I've come to realize that all the Food Network shows are, like,
0: terrible. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They're not good. They're just watchable. They're watchable enough.
1: Some of them are. It's like there's a lot of stuff on the Food Network that's not even watchable, (laughs) to be
0: honest. What do you mean? I remember we showed it to a hotel. We watched this TV show called, it was, like, the uh, Pioneer Woman, which is so awful. (laughs)
1: Pioneer woman, yeah, is that on the Food Network?
0: Yeah, it was terrible. What is it? It's just like, a, oh, I'm, I'm a country girl. I go live on my, my husband's cattle ranch, and I cook my family food. It was oh terrible. God! <laughs> I told you. <laughs> uh, we actually just finished watching Zubo's Just Desserts,
1: mm. which is just <laughs> hilarious to me that that exists. <laughs> Outside of Australia. <laughs>
0: I'm disappointed they didn't make a second season.
1: That's why I'm surprised it even made it outside of Australia.
0: Did you Did you watch it?
1: I saw a couple of episodes, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty entertaining. I preferred uh, to watch like something like MasterChef.
0: Yeah, yeah, MasterChef is, like, better.
1: I'm not sure what the American one's like, because it, it's had a weird journey. So MasterChef originated, I believe, in Britain. And that was more of a sober cooking show. Um, and then the Australian version, which possibly predates the American version, but I'm not sure, turned it into like a slick reality TV show.
0: It's it's definitely closer to this slick reality TV show than anything that's serious. Um, the reason Alicia and I like watching it so much is that all of the judges are like so overdramatic. It's hilarious. It's like every moment is so like shamelessly like, uh, engineered to make you feel something it's really funny
1: the reality show like techniques that our master chef used was there was one moment in which one of the judges is sampling the food and you know what they normally do when they do that is they they chew thoughtfully but they don't give anything away on their face so it could be terrible and it could be great uh-huh. and he said this is absolutely
0: terribly great <laughs> the american does that the american one does that too right <laughs> But it's literally like every episode or something like that, because <laughs> the Gordon, Gordon Ramsay's sort of the host, and he's like a prime cut ham. So you get stuff. There's like there's one episode where it was like this contestant say goodbye to this other one because you're going up on the balcony because you won. It's like okay, okay, <laughs> yeah. Like the amount of like convoluted like. Is this gonna be a compliment or a or are you going home? Sort of things it's just ridiculous, like
1: I actually think I misremembered. I think he actually said, This is disgusting. Dot dot dot. Disgustingly
0: great <laughs> That's amazing. And the, the new season of Mass Trip just started. it's it's even better somehow. Because uh the way they're doing it is that the judges like uh chose like specific teams, right? Like the, the process by which they selected people was just so do you know what the word extra means? Is that Yes, playing this translated. Okay, it's just so extra.
1: A teenage girl explained it to me. So. <laughs> uh,
0: but it's it's just the most extra show that's ever existed. I love it for that reason.
1: Uh, I'm curious. The one thing I like about uh, our version of Master's Chef versus its competing show, which is called My Kitchen Rules. I'm not sure if that format has traveled.
0: I feel like that has premiered in the states. I'm not. I've never watched it though. So. I think
1: it, I think I remember hearing about it premiering, but maybe it didn't take.
0: But that show is like,
1: I find it unwatchably bad because they try and orchestrate conflict between the contestants, which is a normal thing for reality shows. But Master Chef never does that. It's all about everyone being supportive with one another, which I really yeah. like.
0: Wait, I mean, there's like some villains, of course. No,
1: the, our our one has never had a villain that I've ever seen. Like it hasn't tried to do that, which is which is kind of commendable in the in that environment.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: The only thing it does that is like horrible is it it milks. Sub stories out of the contestants like what does it mean to you that you're here and you know your mother survived cancer yeah like that, that nonsense yeah so it has that exploitation stuff but so far and i, I could be wrong because i haven't seen every series or anything like that there's been no attempts to um
0: reality showed up yeah
1: create conflict between the contestants
0: okay. uh not only did my kitchen rules become an american show is the original one have celebrities on it is that what the no. Okay. So they did celebrities in the American one and the winner was Andrew Tice Clay. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. It kind of makes you want to watch it, actually. So the format is,
1: it's a pair of people and they host the other contestants at their house and cook a meal. So it's usually like two friends or a couple. Ah, uh, so
0: it's, it sounds like the American one did that. It's like similar, like there's like a relationship status too. But the twist is that it was celebrities. Okay. Anyway, keep on going.
1: The thing here was that only one of them could usually cook and the other person was just kind of walking around helping them. So they were kind of redundant. But the whole thing was trying to orchestrate conflict between the contestants. And part of the way the game works is that when one of the teams hosts the rest of the teams for a dinner, all the other teams score them. As well as you know, bipartisan judges. So if a team is feeling vindictive and they don't want another team to win, they can just give them one or zero. And it also had a history of being like kind of racist, like
0: just like Australia. So anyway, yeah, Zubos just, just desserts.
1: That didn't have any conflict that I remember. That was just
0: straight. No, it was just people cooking. There's some vil- there's some people who were terrible on it, but I don't know if they just dis- I describe those violence. But there's always like that in on reality TV shows. I find. You have to go to one of Zumbo's stores. I totally should try to convince you to do that.
1: Are they still in business? I don't, I don't know. Uh,
0: this, this this won't violate your food your your food budget, will it? I mean, if it's for the podcast, it's tax-deductible, I guess. <laughs> the podcast? <laughs> this is definitely going to be uh, included in the...
1: Live from Zumbo's dessert parlor, whatever.
0: There's one in... What is Yara? South Yara? Oh, there is one in Melbourne.
1: South Yara is really close to me, actually. <laughs>
0: you have to go. I could walk there. You have to go. It's, it's on... Uh... Chapel Street? No, it's on uh, Claremont Street. Okay. Claremont, right off of uh, Torak Road. <laughs> South Yarra is like a rich suburb. Yeah, of course it is. You have to, you have to go. Wait, I have to, I have to pause for another bathroom break. I'm sorry.
1: For another what? bathroom break. <laughs> what are you drinking?
0: Coffee. Oh. So we've got
1: opposing stimulants.
0: Apparently. But I'll be right back. diarrhea noise Oh no it started again okay <laughs> So uh, now is the part of the podcast where we actually talk about the movies that we're going to talk about. Because this is a podcast, despite appearances to the contrary.
1: So Winter Sleep is a story of a former actor who has become uh, something of a landlord in a remote mountainous
0: area. Of the Turkish steppes.
1: And the film explores his position within this community, his relationship with his wife. Um, So this film is based on a Chekhov short story called The Wife.
0: Shame, shame it wasn't short like the story, am I right? <laughs>
1: and apparently it also uses a subplot from a uh, Dostoevsky novel as well.
0: The Brothers Karmazov, which I've never read. Now,
1: I'm curious if you can anticipate my feeling towards this film if I just run off a series of facts about it.
0: If I... I'm going to assume that you love it, just based on the stuff I know about your aesthetic. tastes.
1: <laughs> so first of all, it's over three hours. Uh-huh. <laughs>
0: Wait, I think you can just stop there.
1: No, 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 no. It's slow-paced. Oh, oh, okay, okay. It's existential. It has a character who is struggling to write something of significance. <laughs> the director uh, has listed his influences as Tarkovsky, Bergman, Bresson, and Ozu. In fact, in fact, his top ten that he gave to Sight and Sound in 2012 has two Tarkovsky films. And two Ozu films. Which ones? I think Mirror and Andre Rublev.
0: Ah, Mirror is no good.
1: And the Ozu films was Late Spring and Tokyo Story. Tokyo Story is great. So, do you think I liked it based on those
0: uh, details? <laughs> Just based on those descriptors? I feel like you're going to pull a uh, fast one, obviously, and actually say that you didn't like it.
1: Or am I setting you up to seem like I might pull a fast one and that I should like it but won't, but I actually did like
0: it? I have no idea. You have to tell me. I didn't really like it. Really? That's funny.
1: (laughs) I wasn't a big fan of it. Yeah, this isn't me. So I will say that it's not boring. Even though it is slow paced and it does last over three hours, there is something to be said for what's gone into it that means that the result is not boring. Like I wasn't sitting there like tearing my eyes out or anything like that. But it, it didn't seem to add up to something that was wholly satisfying to me. What did you think?
0: Uh, I actually kind to of agree with you, but I think there are enough pleasures and just the way it was shot and the performances and sort of some of the writing that I enjoyed it regardless. Um, even if it wasn't like that co- cohesive.
1: There are definitely some good performances. Uh, I feel like maybe at the two
0: hour mark or,
1: or shy of that, it kind of runs out of momentum and then it's kind of treading water for a while. Like it's interesting if you look at some of the production backstory of it. Like it's something that the director was passionate about and had been working on for a long period of time, but a lot of it feels like it needed a few more drafts to kind of cohere into something. It's kind of like mute.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's exactly like mute. That's that's <laughs> <laughs> the mute of uh, art films.
1: So I've mentioned like his influences, like Tarkovsky, Bergman, etc., and you can see um you can see that. In the way he's put this film together, you can see Bergman. But if we talk about Bergman specifically, it lacks that concentrated sort of psychological wallop that Bergman can deliver in a much shorter time frame, like ninety minutes, for example.
0: But yeah, but I think that's I think that's actually why uh, it doesn't deliver that because it's, it's so drawn out.
1: Then, if you look at Tarkovsky, who made some films that were similarly drawn out, but which were more justified by that probing lyrical existentialism of his camera if I can put it so pretentiously
0: yeah the style and this is not very um... no
1: no I don't think like it's well shot like yeah the shots look nice but I don't think there's a there's like a visual
0: sense there. but it's not it's not like it doesn't have a uh it doesn't have like an expressionist character, character no
1: no so often you're left with these like very long dialogue scenes uh that are like acting showcases.
0: I, love, I actually loved the dialogue scene. They were great.
1: Um but they kind of devolve into just two shots.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think there is some stylistic like there's one shot that really struck me which is that um it's like just a simple like like match on action or whatever or like eye line match. But whenever it cut back to the main character like it was a, it like cut to a slow push in on his face. I thought that was really well done. But uh yeah, for the major- the majority of them, uh it's very sort of classical
1: the most bold element of this film, I would say, um, is the opening. Um, so there's this weird sort of mock trailer for a
0: video game. <laughs> oh my god. You just can't stop referencing the fact that you're watching these things illegally. <laughs> but do, do you know the thing that the thing that played before I watched this particular stream on this
1: shady website? Uh-huh. Was an ad for a game... Actually called Cunt Wars.
0: (laughs) Oh, That's really funny.
1: (laughs) Which just looked like one of those, like, uh, grinding kind of RPG phone games. But with cunt! (laughs) But with um, naked anime women.
0: That's actually a pretty popular genre. Um,
1: And it really set the mood for Winter Sleep.
0: I guess you should we talk about a little more about the movie, like the you know you sort of touched on the the overall plot, but he's
1: a much older landowner who was formerly an actor and he's got a younger wife, which is the main dynamic.
0: And he sort he, he uh has a very like nostalgic and he apparently lives like somewhat bohemianly, but it, it seems like sort of in the way that rich people do so.
1: Yeah, but based on his like columns and stuff, he seems to have developed something of a conservative viewpoint. Yeah. And uh, he lives with his sister, who hates him, his wife, who hates him, <laughs> 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 Probably Because he's terrible. But there's there's some there's some really good, interesting scenes, I guess. That again, I don't think necessarily coheres in in the whole of the film.
0: But... I feel like the only I feel like him as a character doesn't really clear, but I feel like the um sort of the way it details the relationship with the um lower class, a mom, and that family. I thought that was pretty well realized. That was, definitely the, that was definitely the strongest part of the film, and, and more cohesive, too.
1: Yeah, I agree, and that maybe would have hinted at a stronger film if it was more focused on that kind of weird dynamic that he has with his community.
0: Yeah, I agree with you.
1: And I guess the, the, the showcase scene of the film, really, is, is when his wife tries to give that poor family, who is renting off the husband, she tries to give him the money that he's given her to donate to a charity, just wholesale to this family. And the um, father of the family, who um, the wife gets known sort a little boy by proxy, ends up burning the money that she has tried to donate to alleviate their financial woes. That's kind of a powerful moment. It is. So there are a lot of ideas running through this film. It's not incompetently made. It's quite handsomely shot. It's not a terrible film by any stretch, but it left me wanting something more, I think. See, I I
0: think it, it... I would have liked it to be more but I thought I just thought there was so much pleasure to be found in just like watching these dynamics be explored that I actually really enjoyed it. <laughs> it's so I could just like watch forever, actually, like, <laughs> do You know what I mean? <laughs> I know what you mean
1: in reference to like different films that I've enjoyed. Yeah,
0: before. but like I, I, it's not like I thought it was like um, exceptionally made. I thought it was like pretty good, but there's just something about it that I just really was like I could just watch this like asshole actor and <laughs> all these characters just just live on okay like, i wish it had been like a soap opera or something you could just watch again just over and over again
1: what was weird maybe you can shed some light on this if i missed something but i thought they were setting up the fact that the sister like commits suicide or something and that's why
0: she just sort of vanishes that was strange but i mean it's obviously deliberate so i don't i don't know if it's just like a choice that didn't really like fully come through or if it was
1: it doesn't quite work either way like if it was in and in because i think that that can be powerful in, in films when there's like this hint that an event has happened, but it's not explicit about it. Yeah. What they call an ellipsis in some cases where they show the aftermath of it, but
0: no, that's three dots. Ah, right. Right.
1: But in this case, it kind of just feels like it should have been resolved in some way.
0: Yeah. it seems like something that they just like, uh, just, they didn't draw enough attention to it. You know, they
1: sort of set something up where she kind of disappears from the narrative and they say like, Oh, she should be here right now. And they knock and they knock on her door and, yeah, gonna, but that's it. Then she's gone. Yeah, you never see her again.
0: But again, it had a really sort of strong literary quality that I liked a lot, which in some ways it makes it not a great like cinematic film, right? There's something about that, that was like oddly comforting to me, and I thought like the landscape, like all the mise-en-scene was just like amazingly you know, like rendered, and like, it just seemed so um, perfectly constructed. And I want to, I want to go to that hotel.
1: You wanted to actually have his life. Yeah,
0: I do. Not his exact life. But just uh, like you don't
1: want the resentful wife.
0: <laughs> no, or, or, or like, Odie. I don't want to own property. But having you, have you enough money to, like, not really care about having guests and just having this bed and breakfast in the middle of the Turkish twenty that would that be great? What did you think of the uh, ending of the film?
1: Yeah, I didn't think it ended especially strongly.
0: It just seemed a little, like, uh, okay, <laughs> I don't know. Guess you have to end this movie now.
1: Yeah, like I said, like, I think about two hours through it seems to have spent... What it was trying to do, but
0: I don't think that's true because, like, the best the best scene of the film is, as you said, is, like one of the final ones.
1: Was after that, yeah. It, with the exception of that scene, like, I think it mostly runs out of steam
0: by that point. Yeah, when he goes to the hunting lodge, the themes that are being explored have already been explored stronger in other sequences. Like, there's no new additions to the the character, the dynamics that have been introduced. No,
1: it said it. it said everything about his situation and and the way it has has like explored his lord character and his standing in this community is kind of really interesting especially in the earlier scenes where there is that divide between him and his tenants um and the whole class thing and he kind of defers responsibility to one of his underlings
0: you're actually you're actually making me just dis- like this film less because <laughs> yeah the <laughs> opening the opening is really I, I uh is really strong i think but it, yeah, it doesn't really it doesn't build on this this central relationship that much it tries to do it with the wife character but it's doesn't, it doesn't quite complicated again.
1: Uh, I haven't read the uh the Chekhov story it's based on but I I know it has a different ending that oh really tries to come up with some sort of resolution to their situation that this doesn't. I don't think it's necessarily a problem for a film to not give the easy answers but this film definitely feels like it was lacking something by the end to bring it all together.
0: I feel like there should have been like one more scene between him and the his tenants. But I thought I I really I I really like the the dynamic that's established between like oh, he's so obviously like this like member of the aristocracy but he just doesn't like um want to be one in a way but he wants all the privileges. It reminded me of King Lear actually a lot, where it's like he doesn't he doesn't want to be uh have the recognition of being like this uh rich person right, but he still seems to want all the privileges associated with it. And I thought that was, it just seemed, I, I really enjoyed sort of the class dynamics in that. It seemed, it seemed, uh, true to some extent. I guess you should talk about the, I mentioned it briefly, but the performances are pretty, pretty great all around, I think.
1: Yeah, it was a very strong cast. Uh... Anything else? No. Boon me time. Okay. Well, we did not really spend that long talking about that movie. <laughs> but we've, we talked a lot about cast. so... <laughs> So the second film we'll be talking about today, uh, you can introduce.
0: Uh, so it's a film called Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives, right? hmm uh, directed by uh...
1: You did such a good job pronouncing it the last time. Why
0: don't why don't you do it this time? <laughs>
1: Alright. Uh, directed by Pichip Pong.
0: hmm
1: We're s- s- th- 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 cool. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think that's about as good as mine. Yeah,
1: because it was less uncertain. It, sound, it sounded confident.
0: <laughs> Did it? He took like a good walk. He just like soared a bunch of the syllables. Yeah. Maybe we should just call him Joe, which is what he uh, goes by in the West. Apparently.
1: Does he? Does he actually? Because otherwise, it'd be offensive
0: if we just go. Let's call him Joe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, according to his Wikipedia page, which you know, it says Cenaphiles affectionately referred to him as Joe, a nickname. That he, like many with similarly long Thai names it's adapted out of convenience, so I'm sure his
1: name's not that hard, but if you you need to hear him pronounce it
0: or if you if you don't yeah exactly or if you just don't you know speak Thai on a regular basis, which neither of us do unfortunately okay, so <laughs> we've got the racism section out of the way I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'll be back. Oh, I'm sure. um, Right, so, uh let's see, what is what is Uncle Boom about? It's about this, uh sort of this guy whose name is Boon Me <laughs> who is uh died of a mysterious kidney ailment, right? Who uh retreats to a sort of country estate that he has that he runs that he's like the owner slash like foreman of this uh farmland and there's like a uh, apiary, right? And and he's sort of visited by all these, this mixture of like historical reverie, uh, mythological uh, fantasia and uh, ghosts and sort of visitors from his past, the pasts. That's sort of the entirety of the (laughs) plot. This is not a film uh, that is especially dependent on its uh, narrative, I would say. So there you go, that's sort of the uh, introductory sketch, as it were. Um, So Hugh, what did you think about Uncle Pume? Uh, Did you enjoy sort of its commitment to hallucinatory imagery or were you left desiring something with a little more uh, grounding in reality?
1: Well, I will say to pick up the thread that we dropped uh, a few moments earlier, if this was in competition with Winter Sleep, uh, I would prefer if this won.
0: Yeah, I would too.
1: Um, I think it's the better of the two films we watched. In a way, it's slower than Winter Sleep. It has this stillness because it eschews music for the large
0: part. <laughs> Except for the ending, which is amazing. <laughs> Except for the
1: ending, yes. And the camera is very static throughout most of the film. There are some scenes where it is unmoored, but otherwise it's, it's usually in a tripod. And it really has the atmosphere of an evening in a remote area. And you get that soundtrack of the insects like crickets or the tie equivalents. And there's
0: some, there's some like a uh, sort of David Lynch's electronic buzz as well. But
1: there's a lot of sort of ambient insect noise throughout the film. And it, and it really kind of captures that atmosphere quite successfully, even though it changes style a little bit throughout the film. Um, I, I mean, this is kind of something I'm putting on the film after viewing it. That didn't necessarily occur to me at the time, but apparently it was a kind of a love letter to celluloid and each of the reels were shot using a different, style according to the director
0: no oh, that wasn't that wasn't necessarily evident in the, the film i don't think no no it would, i
1: didn't notice that either
0: i didn't even think it had been shot on film to be honest
1: the director used this as part of a multi-stage art installation and you can kind of see that
0: yeah i, I read that but I, I didn't really i didn't really um, feel that the film itself was lacking though you know like, it didn't feel like there was something that was missing like larger context you know
1: no no what I what I liked about this as distinct from Winter Sleep is that there is an elusive quality that makes me feel like there's something I'm not getting and that I want to go back to this film to explore whereas Winter Sleep I have no reason to like rewatch it I feel like
0: it, more than that I like get that elusive quality is something that's like purely cinematic too
1: There's some amazing images in this film especially the the ghost monkeys which are usually portrayed as nothing but red glowing eyes in a forest
0: Yeah well black silhouettes so with red glowing eyes. There's just some great hallucinatory stuff. The most obvious thing that,
1: that ties back to the director's intention of having a different style with every reel is that middle section where it does that like costume. eyes Yes. There's like a middle section that has the um, a seemingly unrelated story of like a disfigured princess um, looking at herself in the reflection of the water and one of her servants. And it has some of the best fish fucking that I think I've seen. <laughs> yeah.
0: The side of Shape of Water.
1: But I was I was gonna say that, but it's better than the Shape of Water in, in every way. So I will admit that I
0: had a lot of trouble watching those were because of my mental state and stuff.
1: It's very slow. Yeah, but
0: normally I don't mind that quality. But uh, I was super tired and out of it, so it's not the not the film for that. You need to be in somewhat of a specific, alert state to to get the most out of it for sure. Hmm. This film also has some really great uh if <laughs> like the complete opposite side of like effect wise performances in it, i think what do you mean i don't know there's like a certain spaced out quality that he gets with all of his performance i thought it was like really striking
1: there was something unusual about the the delivery and stuff yeah i agree
0: yeah which also kind of reminded me of uh some david Lynch stuff <laughs> not to not to harp on this but it was kind of I don't know. I don't want to be like, oh, just because he uses a lot of dream imagery that makes him like David Lynch. But there's something sort of similarly um, spaced out to how David Lynch shoots his actors. At least in like Inland Empire.
1: With these type of films, it's kind of sad that they have to be the product of like a billion international co-productions.
0: So that's just the reality of art cinema these days.
1: It doesn't seem like it's a hugely expensive film, but it still took like 20 different companies to fund it. Which is kind of sad. I mean, because there's there's like uh, one of them was like in the International Film Fund or whatever, but it still couldn't obviously fund it in isolation. There's still took this this grifting of all these all these different uh, grifting <laughs> international. People.
0: That's just the way it is these days. Yeah, I know, but still. But the special effects are great. Yeah, they are. They're really striking.
1: They're really really well done.
0: And like even the um like costumes of the creatures. Really worked.
1: Yeah, so even when you see this aforementioned ghost monkey uh, sort of in, in normal lighting, it looks great. Oh
0: my god, that sequence is amazing when they're at dinner.
1: And he kind of looks like uh, a, a, a sort of legacy of the wolf man. But it's so well done. It's 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 just a really effective, simple costume of like this hairy monkey man.
0: And it's, it's weird that the um, costume... That appears, I mean, maybe it's because the lighting was different, but in the, the sequence that happens um, when Boon is just, when they're in the cave and he's just like talking about his it, like dream of the future or whatever, and then and it cuts to like a series of um, still shots, like photographs, it cost him like way, way less convincing. <laughs> but it it is just because of like the lighting, I guess. And it, it, it was probably a digital too. I don't know. Do you
1: have my, my one problem with this film? Mm hmm. So it's called Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives, right? That's the title. Uh-huh. And yet, the only time he seems to recall his past life, he remembers being in a cave that he wasn't before, but specifically says, I can't recall the past life. So the only time past lives really come into it explicitly, he says he can't recall his past life.
0: Well, presumably that, uh I mean, presumably all like the flashbacks and stuff are like past lives.
1: I guess so, but still.
0: <laughs> you guess so? <laughs> What do you think
1: of the ending of this one? I like the ending. Me too. I like films that end in a musical number.
0: <laughs> I really tell elusive it was. It's just
1: so so different from the rest of the movie. <laughs> That's why I guess the the different styles of reels that he was talking about. Yeah, I guess comes into it. But um, not as perfect an ending as like Bo or something like
0: that. No, no. Which has the best
1: musical ending in cinema? Yeah, but still great. It's so bizarre. <laughs> I love the opening stretch of the film before the title sequence in which you first see one of those monkey men, ghosts, turn to the camera with their red glowing eyes and you just get the title. Yeah, that's great. Uh, that's a great moment. So that's that. Covered two Great Con winners.
0: <laughs> By which we barely talked about two Great Con winners. <laughs> I wonder, it's, uh, it's, a, it's something that I always get when I watch foreign films, but I wonder how much different the, experiences, the experience of watching this movie is, is if you are Uh, attire at least understand the language and more of like the um cultural specifics
1: because it's like a meditation on death time and and myth seems to be integrated into it
0: and there definitely seems to be a buddhist quality to it it's folded into the text explicitly at the end
1: the best thing to say about it is like i I said before it's rich enough that you have the desire to revisit it
0: i feel like bud may unlike uh the main character of uh, Winter Sleep, whose name I've forgotten. <laughs> it's definitely treated a little more affectionately. But how did you feel about the reveal that he was like a like anti communist like uh, murderer, essentially
1: I liked that element of the film actually. I think it gives it gives more depth to the character. It didn't it wasn't necessarily saying like he's a horrible person. No. It's just like he may have done horrible things. As...
0: It's sort of it's sort of like humanist in that way, I guess. It's funny that how how much it's focused on like the uh, the temporariness of life, but match with that sort of like slightly humanistic quality.
1: Uh, and I and I I'm kind of a sucker for films that deal with death in this particular way that kind of make this as like a transient passage in time kind of circles around in a way.
0: Are you a, are you a Buddhist too? <laughs> I kind of just want to watch this movie again. Actually, definitely make, definitely makes you want to watch some of his other films.
1: What films have you been watching? Let's start with you. All right. Um, I haven't watched that many new films. I've rewatched some films I've liked, but uh, one of the newer films I hadn't seen before was The Bandwagon.
0: Oh, uh, never seen it.
1: Which is an MGM musical. Uh, I guess you could compare it to Sing in the Rain in that it's kind of from the era of musicals in which they were self-conscious.
0: I think, I think music, musicals are always self-conscious, though.
1: But, I mean, more explicitly. Like, if you think of Singing in the Rain having its plot about the transition from silent cinema to sound cinema.
0: I watched a Busby Berkeley film not that long ago that is so self-aware. But I'm saying, like, the, the, but the plot of the narrative is also about movies, too. So say saying that, like, self-awareness is always sort of an aspect of
1: it. Um. So where Singing in the Rain is about <clears throat> cinema... This one is more about a stage show, but the character that Fred Astaire plays, an older Fred Astaire. Was it released? 1953. Okay. So it's after his, you know, Fred and Ginger era. And he's playing a character of a different name, but who is essentially Fred Astaire, who is being cast in a Broadway play by a renowned director after having had an early career as a musical star in films. Uh, And it's directed by Vincent Minnelli. So there is a problem with some of those early Fred and Ginger films in which the structure around the musical numbers is not so solid and is sometimes kind of generic and bland. And this is probably the best director I've seen work with Fred Astaire so far.
0: It's funny you say that because I was actually reading an article about um, (laughs) The Wife of the Party, which said that uh, that Fred Astaire, like his problem was that he would, just work with uninteresting directors and that, that really changed when he started working with, uh, Vincent Minelli, so.
1: And I mean, there was a particular director who did Top Hat, Mark, something or other, right? I can't remember looking up at the moment. Uh, Mark Sendrick, I think. And they just tried to replicate the success of previous films. Like he did the Gay Divorcee and then Top Hat is kind of a version of the same plot with the same characters. Like there's a, there's the same troop in, in a lot of the films. There are some interesting ones. Like, I've watched most of them
0: by this point. You've wasted a lot of your life.
1: And I enjoy all of them, even though they're not always that great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Vincent Munoz is probably the best director he worked with, um, certainly from the films I've seen. Probably
0: one of the the best old Hollywood directors in general, I think. Yeah,
1: and uh, I think if this film actually had Ginger Rogers in it, and if the script had given her a better part, then this film would be perfect. I think the only flaw is the romantic side of the film. And what they give the actress to do.
0: I feel like Predacere is always a bit of a weird romantic lead, though. It would have said it's difficult to cast someone who works really well.
1: Certainly as well as, as Ginger Rogers did. But yeah, otherwise, there's there's not much wrong with the film at all. I think it's a delightful musical.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? <laughs> Incredibly
1: inarticulate about it.
0: Well, that'll fit in with the rest of the podcast.
1: <laughs> not even looking at my notes. I actually wrote notes about it, so I should look at that. Yeah, you probably because it's been a while since i actually watched it um actually everything i've just said is what i wrote about it so that's all right <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you mentioned that it was like uh, a little postmodern or self-aware like wh- in what way
1: the f- the fact that it reflects fred astaire's career in the character so it has his backstory built into it kind of like wide white yeah like he's a washed up former star so the plot of the film is that he's making a comeback via Broadway. The stage director within the film is portrayed as a like really pretentious guy who turns the effervescent, silly musical idea that Astaire and his friends have about this production into this pretentious Faustian nonsense that bombs at the box office or, or whatever the Broadway box office is. Um, and then Astaire takes over the production and becomes successful.
0: I feel like Vincent Minnelli made a lot of like really self aware films like that, though. It's kind of a stock and trade, like the bad and the beautiful.
1: Uh, what I forgot about The Bandwagon is it has a large chunk in its culminating musical number, which is like a film noir musical, which is amazing. That's bizarre.
0: <laughs> That's so funny.
1: And it does like a whole plot within a couple of set pieces with Fred Astaire as like a down and out detective and the heroine of the film as the femme fatale it's great it's really good
0: who plays the who plays the heroine uh her
1: name i don't know how to pronounce it but
0: sid sharice
1: and she's a ballet dancer so in the film she's a ballet dancer as well so the
0: bandwagon the
1: bandwagon your turn uh
0: i guess i'll talk about a movie that i assume that you've seen called the departed i have seen which is a uh, martin scorsese film so i don't think genuinely considered one of his uh best films
1: but the Oscar-winning
0: film. Yeah, but a film that I uh, thought was really, really enjoyable. A little shallow.
1: Based on the Hong Kong film, Infernal Affairs.
0: Yeah. yeah, but, uh, yeah, Departed, it's a very twisty, entertaining film about a bunch of people who are double agents <laughs> uh, in Boston. And Boston? It's not, I don't think it's one of his sharp, sharpest drawn films, but I think it's really funny <laughs> and really great. Uh, it's got this, like, wicked comedic energy. I really enjoy just everything about it, to be honest. Uh, except for maybe, like, the Vera Farmiga character is just sort of, like, pointlessly drawn. Um, but it's just sort of a, I don't know, it almost reads like a parody of, like, double agentness. you know what I mean? <laughs> or, like, a cops and robbers song, because it's just so convoluted and, like, almost to the point of, like, nonsensical abstraction. And I think all the performances are really good. I think Matt David especially is just amazing. This is like slimy, like do anything to survive, uh, undercover mafia agent type person. Just a film that is incredibly entertaining. <laughs> I think uh, I think what most people remember about this movie is that the last image is like ridiculously dumb, uh, but I actually think it's great and it's uh, how like um, obvious it is. If that makes sense, like it's just so like there's a rat. Everyone's a rat. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I don't have a lot to say about it. it. It's it's just a film that I thought was so pleasurable and enjoyable to watch. And there you go. What do you think about The Departed?
1: All I remember about it, I saw it at the time at the movies, um, was that it was entertaining. Yeah, <laughs> it's very entertaining. That's that's about it. That's all I remember. About
0: it. Again, it's like, there. Are, you could definitely like read stuff into it, but it's not quite as, it doesn't have quite the same depth as like something like Goodfellas or The Wolf of Wall Street, I don't think. But it's good. I love Martin Scorsese. But he's like he's kind of like you and Kubrick, where I'm like a little. It's like a little. Uh, oh, I'm a white guy who likes movies. Well, so Martin Scorsese, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think he is one of the great directors. So I don't know what to say besides that. And I think he's really underrated as like a comedic director. Uh, and I think the Departed is really funny, and it's got this really great year for like like tough asshole male uh, dialogue, and scene and scene i i and like there's something about it that is really about like performance and the authenticity of being male that i also responded really well to
1: that's an authentic male yourself
0: yeah yeah so authentic but no just like how um i mean it's almost like a that's a read to but it's almost like a treatise on how like ginger is performance but i feel like that's mostly brought up in terms of like uh women performing right but it's very much about how these like sort of masculine codes are like performative and and exist only to to be a performance, you know. It's got one of my favorite just, like, pure action sequences, maybe of all time, where the, there's this great foot chase where, um, DiCaprio's, like, stalking Matt Damon through all these, like, this scuzzy, like, porno theater and stuff that's just really great and well directed. And I think I think Jack Nicholson gets a lot of shit for being, like, so handy, but he's kind of, like, great at just how, like, over-the-top he is. He's, like, this, like, weird, like, vampire who has been transposed into the, uh, Boston crime world. And I, I enjoy that sort of like, really just like, this is just a guy who enjoys being a terrible monster. And that's his plot. That's his character. Um, yeah, I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. There you go. That's the Departed.
1: I'm going to quickly get out of the bathroom. Paper. Okay, how's
0: the bathroom? Good. How oh, good? Very good. Mm-hmm. That's good. Was it, uh, were you feeding or you pooping?
1: Well, what do you think I could have squeezed into that time
0: frame? Uh, just a little bit. Just a little, little a bit,
1: too. Of, bit of both. Yeah, yeah.
0: I believe mean they call that, um, <laughs> servitor. That's <laughs> one of my best jokes.
1: That is that is your best joke.
0: <laughs> right. Uh, anyway, so no. I believe it's your turn again. Do you want to twist it up and then. Oh, okay, go ahead. It's your turn. Go ahead, Hugh. Uh,
1: should I talk about My Winnipeg?
0: One of my favorite films.
1: My Winnipeg is Guy Madden's semi autobiographical account
0: docu-fantasia
1: of his home city of winnipeg what i liked about it is that it's certainly when you start it you can imagine the film playing out as as being kind of insufferable or pretentious
0: yeah
1: or yeah. overly mannered but it's quickly leavened by uh, guy madden's wit and ingenuity <laughs> and his sort
0: of scatological impulses as well i think
1: and what i think is most interesting is that this the sort of myriad of styles he lifts from early cinema, particularly silent cinema. what I like about his adoption of these formalist styles from an early technological era of cinema is that it's not smug or or like retrograde
0: no it's not it's not even that nostalgic really
1: no it's 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 what I liken it to It's as if Madden dreams. In silent movies, and can't help but try and recreate his vision. Yeah, but even
0: they don't even—they're not even like that. Somewhere to the way in which silent films—he
1: recreates them and refracts them and then reassembles them.
0: He know? uses some of the, but it, like he put pushes it through his own like bizarre, uh, personal themes and story ideas and stuff like that.
1: It's like pushed all through the, this Soviet montage nightmare kind, yeah. kind of thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, my two favorite bits are the. Uh, weird. What about the the keys and like how Winnipeggers have uh, uh, they're allowed to have like access to their old buildings because they sweepwalk. So funny and bizarre. uh And I like the I love the bit about the fake Nazi invasion that the Winnipeg government staged, which given the given the um the mixture of fiction and real events, I was certain that it had been falsified, but that actually that really happened. is crazy.
1: I like these kind of essay f- films that create art from their form. Like it's not just telling a narrative. It's, it's something else in the way it does it.
0: I, I also love the fake, like, uh, obviously like Edipal, um, the long Winnipeg show that he invents. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> with his mom. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: also kind of miraculous how he manages to make
0: indulgence so enjoyable. Yeah, because I I feel like because he's so um, critical of himself, mm. you know
1: the indulgence is kind of a joke because the whole the whole joke section about him hiring actors to recreate his memories. It?
0: But his it, films are almost like parody of of it, it almost functions like a parody of like uh, super uh, self reflexive art cinema in a way. But also not I mean that's what I enjoy about it. It's like both a parody and not, you know.
1: Yeah, like, it, it. sense of humor doesn't make it... Oh, it, does, it doesn't
0: invalidate the sort of emotional undercurrents. Like no, no, it doesn't <laughs> in, invalidate the non-humorous stuff.
1: No. But yeah, it was good. Uh, talk about Let the Sun Shine In.
0: Okay, um, continuing my streak of watching a bunch of Claire Denis films. Or Claire Denis, as it were. Um, this is her most recent one. This is sort of a departure for her, where I think... Most of her films are sort of about, uh people doing bad stuff would kill each other. This one doesn't have any of that. It's almost a bit of like a um romantic comedy in a in a way. But it's not constrained by that genre in any way. Uh, it's just sort of this sort of sad, very melancholy film about uh Pinochet and how terrible uh French men are. <laughs> uh, and unlike some films that I would sort of like, you know like sort of feministic bit, there's She's a very, it doesn't um, idealize her character at all. She's sort of very flawed and uh, as fallible as the male characters in her life. But but it doesn't stop them from being awful. Um, And she's very good at, or Denny is very good at, again, like sort of striving for that humanistic quality where every sort of character, like their actions uh, have a basis in what seems to be like lived reality. And it seems to is. She, she's never, um, she never paints someone as just, like, a caricature or, like, a one-note person, right? Or if she does, it's because she's, you know, depicting them from a certain point of view or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, everyone is given the same amount of life, if not detail, you know? Um, and it's just really great. It's, it's sort of, uh, it's not that long, which I also like, but it's just sort of, uh, a picaresque depiction of her various romantic characters. Travayet, Travays, tra I don't even know what I'm saying. Various romantic entanglements, and, uh um, Very Yeah, Pochevays. Uh, and the American, or the English title was terrible, uh, as you could probably tell. Let the sunshine in. Bad title. Yeah, it's just a, uh, it, it's got some very great moments of transcendence, um, and I just thought it was really moving and funny, and just, Denise's aesthetic is just so pleasurable, and, She's just really good at filming, like, human interactions and, like, small moments that, um, it's sort of like, it, I feel like a lot of people have been calling this sort of a minor film, and I think it's much better than that title uh, suggests, because uh, it really focuses on how, like, these small gestures can, um, really impact someone's life, and, uh, it's great. It ends on this, like, a really great ellipsis, too. Uh, where Gerard Depardieu comes in at the very, for the, like, one scene (laughs) as the psychic. (laughs) Oh, it's so funny. Um, But it's just a, it's a really enjoyable film. I thought it was amazing. It's probably my favorite film I've watched this year, so far. Wow. So that's, uh, Let the Sunshine In, or Un Soleil Interior, or whatever it is.
1: So the the sun shining inside or something like that.
0: No, it's like the beautiful sun inside. Okay. Um and uh that's all I got.